1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: A sinister assassin ravages a seven-year-old girl. Can her mother and doctors figure out what it is before it's too late?
3: I was in shock. At that point, I thought, my daughter is going to die.
2: A normal day on the factory floor ends with a machinist
4: fighting for his sight. This is freaking me out. If this goes to my other eye, I'm looking at the possibility of being blind.
2: And an unknown killer attacks a team of doctors and threatens to leave them for dead. Something's going on here. It's not just me. We needed help three very sinister parasites that are brilliantly adapted to life inside the human body. They are vicious. They are wily. They are... shapeshifters. Worms invisible to the human eye. Insects. Mm -hmm. Thirsty for blood. Microscopic amoeba. They might look harmless. But these are some of nature's deadliest creatures. They can hijack our bodies, disable our immune systems. They are parasites. But to those infected, they are the monsters inside me. Parasites are organisms that depend on other living organisms called hosts for their food and survival. And some of the most successful parasites are capable of surviving in a range of different environments. In the air we breathe, the food we eat, and in the ground we walk on. And as their environment changes, so do the
5: parasites. All parasites need to be able to take advantage of their hosts. But some parasites can't do that when they're first ingested. It's only after they go through a complete physical transformation that they become a threat.
2: And when these shapeshifters do change form, they can devastate a host from the inside before the host even knows they're there. Gainesville, Florida. In 1997, Lori Roberts is a 42-year-old court reporter living with her daughter, Lanisha.
3: We love living in Florida because of the weather. We don't like cold weather. We like to swim, take the dogs for walks. It's just a lot of fun.
2: Adopted as a toddler, Manisha is a bright and healthy seven-year-old who enjoys school and playing with her friends.
3: Manisha is very, very sociable. She loves people. She loves being around people, happy-go-lucky.
2: But their luck is about to change. One night in April, Lori is setting the table for dinner when Manisha says something that worries her.
3: She said, Mommy, my head hurts. So I said, where does your head hurt? And she pointed, and she was very specific about where it hurt. She was so very insistent. It's like my heart skipped a beat. I felt like something might be wrong, and I was worried.
2: Lori takes her daughter to the doctor, The physician examines Manisha, but doesn't find anything wrong and sends them home. But Lori isn't convinced.
3: It was just she was so young. She was seven years old and I didn't know of any seven year olds that had headaches. So the fact that she was very insistent about her head hurting caused me concern.
2: A few weeks later, Lori and Manisha are out watching an ice skating show. 20 minutes into the performance, Lori notices that something strange is happening to her daughter.
3: I noticed she was looking over at a corner of the gymnasium and there was nothing there. And I thought, what is she looking at? And then I noticed beside her there was a a pool of water or something. I thought, oh, she spilled her drink. And then I looked again and realized she'd gone to the bathroom. I kind of tried to shake her and she didn't move.
2: Lori carries her daughter to the lobby, where a bystander immediately calls 911. Manisha remains totally unresponsive.
3: She did not move at all. She did not blink. And by that point, I realized something is really, really wrong.
2: Ten minutes later, the ambulance arrives and rushes Manisha to nearby Shan's Hospital.
3: They started asking me, has this ever happened? Does she have a medical condition? And of course, all those answers were, were no. I was just so, I was so scared. I had no idea what could have caused it. At that point, I thought, my daughter is gonna die.
2: By now, Manisha has been unconscious for almost half an hour.
3: It was the longest 20, 30 minutes of, of my life that, it, that I've ever lived through.
2: Pediatric neurologist Dr. Paul Carney is called in to examine Manisha.
6: Manisha was presenting with uh, with spells her fits and they turned out to be seizures. She had never had seizures before so this was
2: concerning. When Manisha finally starts to regain consciousness, Dr. Carney makes a telling observation. What was actually quite revealing
6: was that her head turned to the left and her eyes turned to the left. The right brain controls the left body, the left brain controls the right body. So something was going on in the right frontal brain. Did she have an infection in the brain? Did she have something that was being caused by a bacteria? Or was it a brain
2: tumor? Dr. Carney orders a battery of tests, including a CT scan of Manisha's brain. The results are not good. She had a very,
6: very well-defined lesion in the right frontal region, you could sort of see the outline of something that looked very odd. There appeared to be a very small structure. It almost looked like a head of something.
2: Something is lurking inside Manisha's head. The question is what?
3: And I remember just looking at her laying there and wondering what was going on in her head just that, that tremendous fear, knowing that something was wrong.
2: The scan is so unusual that Dr. Carney seeks a second opinion. He sends the images to Dr. Margaret Hostetter, a leading infectious disease specialist at Yale University.
1: We were able to review all the scans that had been done in Florida. We could see that it was a walled lesion with fluid inside.
2: The unusual appearance of the lesion gives Dr. Hostetter a clue as to the cause of Manisha's seizure. But to be certain, she needs to perform more comprehensive tests.
3: I said, you know, I don't mind bringing Manisha up there. if That would help you. She said, that would be wonderful. We could actually do some very detailed cuts on the MRI. And so we immediately made our plane tickets to fly up to Yale, like within a week. I mean, this is my baby. I was terrified. I was afraid I was going to lose her.
2: 7-year-old Manisha Roberts has suffered a massive seizure. Doctors have no idea why. Desperate to find out what is wrong with her daughter, Manisha's mother Lori turns to infectious disease expert Dr. Margaret Hostetter of Yale University. For the next three days, Dr. Hostetter and her team subject Manisha to a battery of tests. Finally, Dr. Hostetter calls Lori into her office.
3: I sat down, and she looked at me, and she said, I've gone over all the tests. She said, based on my experience, based on my knowledge, I feel very, very confident
1: that this is what she has. Really, the presentation is most consistent with neurocysticercosis.
2: Neurocysticercosis is a life-threatening condition caused by the pork tapeworm parasite. The pork tapeworm has a distinctive head marked by a double ring of sharp hooks. When it gets into a human, it uses these hooks to burrow through tissue. Once in the bloodstream, it can travel to the brain, where it forms a protective casing around itself called a cyst, where it can live for several years. As the cyst grows, it puts pressure on the brain, causing seizures. Left untreated, these seizures can result in brain damage coma, or even death.
3: I was in shock. I I just was, I couldn't talk, I couldn't think. I was very, very worried about what was going to happen.
2: Manisha's doctors immediately start her on a course of antiparasitic drugs. As they wait to see if the drugs are effective, they're left with one unanswered question. How did the parasite end up in Manisha's brain in the first place?
5: A person can get pork tapeworm two different ways. If they get it from eating undercooked, infected pork, they get a worm in their gut. But if they get it from eating soil that's contaminated with eggs, things are much worse. While the adult
2: worm can feed in the gut, it cannot burrow out. But if an egg is ingested, it can become a larva. The larva can burrow through tissue and form cysts.
5: And if those cysts occur in the brain, that can be deadly.
2: Because the worm is lodged in Manisha's brain, the doctors think she became infected through ingesting water or soil contaminated with pork tapeworm eggs, or through contact with an infected person. And when Lori tells the doctors that Manisha was adopted from Nepal at age 3, the link to the parasite becomes clear.
5: In parts of the world where sanitation is not very good, up to 6% of the population harbor this parasite.
1: I think it's extremely likely that Manisha got this uh, very early in life, perhaps in toddlerhood.
2: The parasite has been laying dormant in Manisha's brain for years.
3: I just couldn't imagine that a parasite could be in her brain for four and a half years and not even show any symptoms of it until very recently.
2: Six months later, back in Florida, Manisha completes her full course of medication, And Lori brings her back to Dr. Carney's office to see if it's worked. We were fairly convinced
6: after repeated brain MRIs that the worm was killed. She's had no further seizures and she should have an excellent outcome.
2: Today, Manisha is a 19-year-old college student majoring in psychology. Her childhood bout with a parasite has left no lasting damage.
3: Honestly, I never had the thought of how serious the situation was. I didn't realize that this worm could actually, could have killed
2: me. After Manisha's recovery, Lori adopts her second daughter, Joy, from Vietnam.
3: The day she was handed to me, I took her to the doctor's office and I said, I want her dewormed because the chances are good that we could have avoided all of this had Manisha been dewormed.
2: In spite of the ordeal, The experience has given Manisha a unique perspective on life.
3: If I had not been adopted and I was still in Nepal, I would have died from this tapeworm. But the fact that I was brought over here and they caught on to what it was and they were able to get rid of it is an amazing thing.
2: In the US, about 1,000 people each year are found to be harboring the pork tapeworm parasite. In most of those cases, the initial infection occurred overseas. Travelers to less developed countries should be sure to drink bottled water, eat food that is prepared in sanitary conditions, and avoid undercooked pork.
5: The pork tapeworm goes through several different stages in its life cycle. It lives as an adult worm, as a larva, as an egg, and as a cyst. And it's the fact that it goes through these radical transformations that makes this parasite the ultimate shapeshifter.
2: The pork tapeworm can live inside its host for years without detection. But other parasites make their presence known immediately. And when they do, the results can be disastrous. 2009, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. 45-year-old John Matthews and his wife, Muna, share a love of the outdoors. John is an avid turkey hunter and expert marksman.
4: I love being out there in the outdoors. To see everything, I guess, wake up in the morning.
7: When he's not out in the woods hunting, he thinks about being out in the woods hunting, so uh, he definitely has
4: turkey on the brain. You've got to get out there and try to figure out what the turkeys are doing, trying to fool Mother Nature, I guess. But
2: John has no idea that he is about to become the target of an enemy he can't see. One day in early December, John is at the manufacturing plant where he works.
4: I noticed all these gray splotches all over my vision. I thought that I had something maybe on my eye, so I start rubbing, and, and that didn't take care of it. It was hard to make out anything in any kind of detail, much like looking through a muddy lens. It was pretty alarming to me. I've never had problems with my my eyes. John calls
2: his optometrist and makes an appointment for the following day.
4: I'm pretty anxious, hoping that she's going to be able to figure out what it is and just fix it. The optometrist performs a series of
2: eye tests. John's right eye is perfectly fine, but when she looks into his left eye, she sees that the back of his eye is inflamed. She
4: asked me if if I did any heavy lifting, like, every day at work. um, And she said, well, I think maybe you broke a blood vessel. Broken blood vessels in the
2: eye are not uncommon and usually heal on their own. But to help reduce the inflammation, John's optometrist places him on a course of steroid eye drops.
4: Knowing that it was just inflammation put my mind at ease. Okay, this is going to be taken care of. Everything's going to be just great.
2: One week later, John is in the car with Muna
4: when a new symptom emerges. Muna driving, and I look a couple blocks ahead of us at the stoplights, and I, I said to her, I see two stoplights.
7: He goes, yeah, he goes, I can see the real one, and then I see a, a smaller ghosted image, but I see two distinct images.
4: The splotches was bad enough, but now I've got double vision. All of this from, from a broken blood vessel? What's going on here?
2: 45-year-old machinist John Matthews is experiencing blurriness and double vision. His family eye doctor is stumped and sends John to a specialist. Dr. Charles Barnes is an ophthalmologist at the Wolf Eye Clinic in Iowa City.
5: John was referred by his optometrist who had noticed a part of the retina in the back of his eye was a little swollen. We call this uveitis.
2: Uveitis is inflammation inside the eye. Dr. Barnes begins by having John read a simple eye chart.
4: The right eye is still 20-20 and everything looks good in there. But my left eye, I'm looking at the eye chart and all I can see is... The bright white light.
7: And I'm thinking, I can't believe you can't see the one big letter.
4: It was a a big shock to me. Both eyes had
2: been 20-20. But Dr. Barnes has bad news about John's left eye.
5: His vision was down to 2,200.
2: At 2,200 vision, you're legally blind. When Dr. Barnes looks inside John's eyes, there's more bad news.
5: We dilated his eyes and noticed that the retina in his left eye had a very different appearance. It had kind of a grainy appearance. The retina is
2: a thin film of nervous tissue that lines the back of the eye and is crucial to central vision. The grainy appearance suggests that something is destroying John's retina.
4: But what is it? This is freaking me out. If this goes to my other eye, I'm looking at the possibility of
2: being blind. Dr. Barnes is stumped, so he puts in an urgent call to a colleague, Dr. James Falk, the chair of the Department of Ophthalmology at the University of Iowa and a leading eye surgeon in the state.
8: Dr. Barnes was worried about the patient because... He had had symptoms for just about three weeks, and he already was legally blind in this eye. We were under the gun to try to figure out what was happening, because we knew if we didn't, he was eventually going to lose vision in that eye.
2: Dr. Falk takes high-resolution photographs of the entire retina. He searches each image for clues. And it's not long before he finds
8: the culprit. I pulled up the color photo and looked, and there and behold was a worm. Was just a shock.
4: A worm? How? How does this happen?
7: What you know? What do you? What do you say? John are thinking. Oh my God! It's eating his eye. We're looking at each other in disbelief. At what point was this going to start to happen with his other eye?
2: But before Doctor
8: Falk can begin treatment, he must identify the worm. You go by the size of the worm. And this was about a 1.5 millimeter worm. So we thought this was the raccoon roundworm.
2: The raccoon roundworm, also known as Baylis ascaris, is a parasitic worm that can grow up to 20 centimeters long. When the eggs of the raccoon roundworm get into the human stomach, they start to hatch. Microscopic larvae emerge and burrow through the intestinal wall and into the bloodstream. The larvae course through the body, looking for food. If they lodge in the eye, they start devouring the eye from the inside out, eventually causing blindness. And it's not just John's vision that's threatened by the raccoon roundworm.
5: As larvae, raccoon roundworms can travel anywhere in the human body. And if they get to the brain, even one or two larvae can be enough to kill.
1: and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
2: The worm's ability to migrate through the body makes it particularly dangerous.
8: These worms, at least these larger worms, can move pretty quickly. If the worm moves out of sight, they'll lose their chance to kill it. We immediately took John right back to the laser, put a lens on him and started banging away at the worm trying to kill it. John is awake
2: and can see the worm on a
4: monitor. You can see it wiggling, trying to avoid the laser. I'm trying to to will that laser To hit it. I want this thing dead.
2: And now, Inside the Monster. Tapeworms in the brain are the world's leading cause of which of the following conditions? A. Dyslexia B. Malnutrition C. Epileptic seizures D. Migraines Tapeworms in the brain are the world's leading cause of C, epileptic seizures. 45-year-old John Matthews has a worm feeding on his eye. To save his vision, doctors must laser the worm before it moves out of range.
4: I'm trying to, to will that laser to hit it.
2: After 20 minutes, the worm finally stops moving.
4: They tell me the worm is dead. It was the greatest relief. It's dead, wow, okay. How soon do I get my vision back?
2: While John waits for his prognosis, the doctors ponder another mystery. How did this parasite end up in John's eye? Bayless Ascaris worms live in the gut of a raccoon. The female worm produces millions of eggs a day, which are passed out in the raccoon's feces. The eggs are eaten by another animal, usually another small mammal, and enter its gut. It's here when the parasite changes its shape that Bayless Ascaris becomes deadly. When an egg hatches and transforms into a larva, the larva migrates through the mammal's body, attacks its central nervous system, and kills it. When its carcass is eaten by an uninfected raccoon, the cycle of parasitic infection is complete. Inside the raccoon, the parasite goes undetected and the host never feels a thing. Dr. Falk finds a clue in John's lifestyle that links him to the parasite.
8: He likes turkey hunting. You know, he's out in the woods a lot. He's around wild animals a lot. Maybe he got a little bit on his glove, took his glove off with his mouth or something. And we think that's how he got it. Finally,
2: the doctors arrive to give John his prognosis.
8: You can't really regenerate the retina. Once parts of the retina are gone, they're
4: gone. As far as my vision coming back, That's not going to happen. I'm told that there is too much damage, that what I've got is all I'll have.
2: Five months later, John is back at work and adapting to his partial blindness. John can still see out of his left eye, but the blotches and double vision remain, rendering him
4: legally blind in that eye. I'm still out hunting wild turkey. I'm not about to give that up. It's such a rare thing to happen to anyone. I've got a better chance of being struck by lightning twice than to have this happen
5: again. I'm not going to stop living. It's estimated that 70% of the raccoons in North America are infested with this parasite, which suggests that people come into contact with it all the time.
2: However, cases of infection in humans are extremely rare. To avoid getting this parasite, people who work or play in areas populated by raccoons should wash their hands thoroughly after spending
5: time outdoors. At different stages of its life cycle, the raccoon roundworm faces very different challenges. As an egg, it has to survive dormant in a very harsh environment for long periods of time. And as a larva, it migrates to the tissues of an animal. And it's the ability to do both of these successfully that makes this parasite the ultimate shapeshifter.
2: The raccoon roundworm is extremely common in North America. Other parasites are less common, but when they do find their way here, they can be just as deadly. California, 1997. Robert Welty is a 41-year-old anesthesiologist with a love of travel and a commitment to charitable work.
9: I traveled extensively, one or two trips a year. A group performing reconstructive surgery on children with cleft lips and burns all around the world. Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Asia, as well as in uh, South America.
2: When he's not traveling, Robert works at Cottage Hospital in idyllic Santa Barbara. He has no idea that a vicious enemy is lurking, waiting to attack. It's late April, and Robert is getting up to go to work.
9: It was about 5 in the morning. I had to be in the operating room by 7 o'clock. In anesthesia, if you don't show up,
2: the whole machine stops. But before he can even get out of bed, Robert is hit with a pain in his stomach. I woke up with
9: explosive diarrhea, cramping, bloating. I didn't know
2: how I was going to get to work, but had to try and push through and do it. After the first surgery, Robert is too sick to continue and heads back home.
9: I crawled into bed and I wanted to climb under a rock. All of a sudden now I was having just extreme fatigue, like where you can barely raise a limb. I was feeling bloated and just counting off minutes till I would run back to the bathroom. Like
2: most physicians, I made the error of trying to self-treat. Robert treats himself with antibiotics and anti-diarrheal medicine for relief. I immediately popped some Cipro thinking I had some sort of simple
9: traveler's diarrhea and started taking Imodium to slow the bowels. But Robert isn't the only one who's ill. My fiancé called me and she thought she was coming down with something too. We kept obsessing over what had we had in the last day or two and
2: couldn't come up with anything. Robert spends the next two days in bed, hoping that his symptoms will improve. Then, almost three days after he first got sick, he gets an unexpected phone call from his coworker, Ruth.
9: So Sunday night, I got a call from Ruth Kyes, who's a nurse, and she had known I went home Friday. And she called to tell me that her husband, who is also an anesthesiologist, had fallen ill with, with GI symptoms. Now, this was interesting because Ruth's husband was an anesthesiologist in another group at another hospital. We had no common
2: contact on a daily basis. Ruth isn't the only one to report that people in the medical community are getting sick. On Monday morning, news comes in from a colleague in neighboring Ventura County. He revealed the shocking
9: fact to me that there were a, a significant number of anesthesiologists in Ventura County who were
2: also ill with gastrointestinal disease. Robert's colleagues are now calling out sick in droves. Over 15 anesthesiologists in two different counties are mysteriously ill, and no one knows why. The local hospitals are forced to cancel surgeries. Meanwhile, Robert is getting sicker by the hour. We needed help. But what could be making the anesthesiologist so sick? Anesthesiologist Robert Welty is suffering from crippling stomach pains and diarrhea. And he's not alone. Over 15 anesthesiologists in two different counties are also mysteriously ill. And no one knows why. We needed help. Desperate to find out what is making his co-workers so sick, Robert reaches out to a trusted colleague. I called Dr.
9: Stephen Jose. He's an infectious disease expert, well-known in the community. I told him, Steve, something's going on here. It's not just me. And it's not just the guys in my group. It's, It's 16, 17, 20 anesthesiologists from two different
2: counties. Dr. Jose is shocked at how sick Robert and the other anesthesiologists
5: have become. Remember, one physician ended up in the emergency room, and this person had to receive intravenous fluids in order to maintain their blood volume and maintain their blood pressure. And certainly, people die of these sorts of illnesses because of profound dehydration. By the end of the week,
2: 29 anesthesiologists across three counties have fallen ill with the same symptoms. Dr. Jose immediately requests stool samples from all the sick anesthesiologists, But a complete analysis could take
5: up to a week. We were pretty desperate to figure out uh, what it was so we could uh, abort this epidemic as soon as possible. One by one, the
2: lab tests come back. But they are all negative so Dr. Jose and the pathologists continue to search for the culprit. Meanwhile, the sick anesthesiologists are only getting worse. My life was reduced to a, uh, the size of my bed.
9: I lived under the covers uh, with no energy, no will to get up
2: and do anything. Enter Mary and Jean, the lab manager at Cottage Hospital. She too is baffled by the lab results.
10: Everything was negative. The parasite studies were negative, the Giardia and Cryptosporidium were negative, viral cultures were negative. Things weren't making sense.
2: Marion remembers an article that she once read in a medical journal.
10: The article that I had actually read was uh, dealing with emerging parasitic diseases. And I tend to get excited with, with new organisms and emerging
2: pathogens she suspects that one of these lesser known organisms might be the culprit. However, the one that interests her is so rare in the US that no test for it has been developed yet. So she develops one herself.
10: Within the first 10 slides, we found our first organism. We were quite excited and yelled out, Eureka and called Dr. Steve Jose down to look at it with us.
5: And we looked under the microscope and could see this for the first time. I mean, it was dramatic to have an answer to the question of what was causing this.
10: This was the cyclospora organism.
2: Cyclospora cayetanensis is a single-celled parasite that ravages the human gut. The parasite attaches to the lining of the small intestine. There, it forms a protective membrane around itself, preventing the host from absorbing nutrients. The immune system tries to eliminate the parasite, causing severe diarrhea and vomiting.
5: Left untreated, that ongoing diarrhea can cause severe dehydration. And that places stress on the circulatory system in the heart that ultimately can be fatal.
2: Robert has been experiencing constant diarrhea for over a week, and there is no end in sight.
9: Cyclospora wasn't on my uh, radar. I don't think I had heard about that since medical school. But uh, we learned a lot about it, and
2: it all fit the picture perfectly. Dr. Jose prescribes Robert an antibiotic called Bactrim to kill the parasite. But a crucial question remains. How did Robert and 28 other anesthesiologists get infected? Will they be able to find the source of the infection before this little-known killer goes on an even bigger rampage? Dr. Robert Welty and 28 other anesthesiologists in the Santa Barbara area have been infected by the little-known parasite Cyclospora. But how did they get this killer parasite? Robert is determined to track down the source of the outbreak. His investigation starts with the parasite itself. Cyclospora begins as a free-living cyst in water or soil. When the cyst is eaten by a human, it travels to the intestine. In the gut, the cyst breaks open, releasing two single-celled parasites. The microscopic parasites attach to the lining of the gut, where they grow and multiply forming new cysts. The new cysts are passed back into the environment with human feces. There, the parasite lies in wait, ready to infect another victim. The most common way for the parasite to infect a human is through food contaminated with infected feces. But how did two dozen anesthesiologists, who live in three different counties, become infected? We had had a banquet,
9: a pharmacy-sponsored banquet, at which three counties worth of anesthesiologists
2: had gathered. The banquet had taken place eight days before the very first symptoms appeared. It was held at a
9: great hotel, a great restaurant, well-known, everybody loves it. It was a banquet to establish rapport between anesthesiologists. We had about 34 people there,
2: including spouses and we had a great time. Thinking that the sick anesthesiologist may have all eaten the same infected menu item, Robert asks the restaurant to provide a copy of the menu from that evening.
9: It was the usual banquet menu. There were choices for steak, fish, chicken, that sort of stuff. So I got that menu and distributed it to every anesthesiologist I could, and I asked them to circle what they had. So as those menus came back, it became obvious that the common ground that we all shared, including the spouses, was the dessert, a dessert
2: containing raspberries and a raspberry sauce. Robert discovers that the restaurant had imported the raspberries from Guatemala. In Guatemala, there's a common phenomenon called mal de mayo, or sickness in May, that is found in the country's human population. It occurs when heavy spring rains wash human waste over crops. If the feces is contaminated with Cyclospora, and the crops aren't washed, infection can occur.
5: Cyclospora is endemic in less developed parts of the world, but outbreaks do occur in the United States. And when they do, it's because people eat infected produce that's been imported, like lettuce, basil, and raspberries.
10: Most people who buy raspberries uh, at that time were not washing raspberries, including restaurants, because raspberries are very fragile. And if you wash raspberries, they tend to fall apart.
2: After one week on the medication, the anesthesiologists begin to recover. It wasn't back to my normal energetic self, but it took a good week to simmer this down and to start to feel normal again. By the following week, Robert is completely cured. Today, Robert is philosophical about his ordeal.
9: You know, living in this town, you just never, never in your foggiest ideas, would ever think you'd get a parasite like this. It just shows the interconnection of of the whole world now with jet travel and, and the shipping of food. You can be anywhere, and this can
5: track you down. Cyclospora is successful because it's a shape-shifter. When it enters the body, it's inside a cyst that lets it get past the digestive juices of the stomach. And once it's passed there, the cyst opens, releasing the parasites to wreak havoc on the intestines.
2: In the U.S., Public Health Code now requires all restaurants to wash their produce. At home, the best way to avoid contracting this parasite is to thoroughly
5: wash fresh produce. Many parasites have an ability we could only dream of. They can radically change the shape of their bodies to suit their needs. As a result, these shapeshifters can take exactly what they need. And as their hosts, there's nothing we can do about it.
2: For more disgusting parasites and tips on how to avoid them, visit our website, animalplanet.com slash me. One day in the spring... Lori receives a disturbing call from Anisha's school.
3: Her teacher felt like she had a hard time focusing. She felt like she was having a hard time learning.
2: Lori learns that her daughter has recently started testing well below her grade level.
3: First grade is the first year here in Florida that they do any kind of formal testing. And so that was my first indication that something wasn't right, and I immediately contacted her teacher and told her I was very concerned about her test scores, and they were also wanting her to either repeat first grade or go to summer school. So I was very, very concerned about what was going on. Her teacher didn't seem to be as concerned as I was. She just felt like, well, you know, she just needs a little extra help. She did say she was very, very kind of hyperactive, that she had a hard time focusing, that she would not always want to sit in her chair and pay attention. Maybe she just needs more one-on-one to help her focus and settle down, and I will make it work. I will figure out how to do this, because it was important to me.
2: Lori begins to give Manisha extra lessons at home. But no matter how hard she tries, Manisha's schoolwork doesn't improve.
3: One of the things that kind of concerned me a little bit was we would go over stuff, and then the next day she wouldn't remember it. She couldn't remember her addition and subtraction tables after going over them a lot. She couldn't remember sight words, simple sight words, and I felt like she should remember this. There was something that was like a, a round shape and it was obviously didn't belong there. And I about fainted. I knew that I thought, I thought, she's got a brain tumor, you know, she's she's got a brain
2: tumor. But Dr. Carney isn't convinced it's a tumor. And when he takes a closer look at the scans, he sees something else. But John's relief is short-lived. Later that week, Muna notices that her husband is behaving strangely.
7: I see him reach for his glass, and he kind of misses his glass. You can tell he couldn't quite tell where it was. And that's when we really noticed for me that I noticed his depth perception was way off.
2: But John, who has yet to finish his full course of medication,
4: is not concerned. I'm going under the assumption that I've broken a blood vessel and maybe this is just a natural change, just hoping that things are going to clear up. It's just a waiting game at this point.
7: At that point, we were just like, OK, obviously something isn't working, because he's not definitely not getting better. And that was def- you know, most definitely getting worse in that case. So it was more of a thing like, well, okay, let's play it out. You know, you have to take these drops and and continue. So it was more of a thing where we were kind of, okay, well, we'll follow the schedule for now, but uh, yeah, there's something that's just not right.
2: But shooting a laser into John's eye could also destroy what's left of his sight.
4: They tell me that to minimize future damage, they're going to have the laser at a lower power, minimize scar tissue, but at the same time, be able to kill the worm. While they were lasering, uh, it, it was a number of shots with the laser. And I, at one point, asked if the worm was curling up and moving away. And the doctor said, yes it is, and I said, I can see it. It was the first time that I had seen the worm. There's a bright light being shown into my eye, and I can see it reflecting into the split lens, just almost floating seemingly inches from my face. And I can see it wiggling, trying to avoid the laser. It appears that the worm was about a millimeter long. They're looking at it curled up a little bit. It's, it's not in a nice straight line. They guess it to be about a millimeter long. Mona asks, so now what happens to the worm? Does it decompose? Does John's body overtake it? You're not going to go in and get it, are you?
7: They were explaining that after the laser procedure was done, that was one of our questions: is, okay, so how do we get it out of there? Well, the answer was, you don't. Really, as long as they've killed it with the laser, there, there's nothing further that they need to do. They just leave it in there. It would probably cause more harm to go in and try to take it out.